Hi, this is Claire Keene, illustrator and author of Once Upon a Cloud, and you are listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 133 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to Stories of the Magic, we are a positive and story-filled Disney podcast offering stories from cast members, Imagineers, artists, actors, and more, including guests, promoting a mutual love of Disney, celebrating and preserving the Disney magic and legacy, and inspiring people to live their dreams just as Walt Disney did. If that appeals to you or piques your curiosity, you're definitely in the right place and I'm glad you're here. Today we have an interview with legendary director and producer Don Hahn. Whether you've heard his name or not, and the odds are you have, I can almost guarantee you've seen his films. In fact, at least one is likely in your top three Disney animated films. It's entirely possible that at least one is in your top three films, period. In this episode, Don talks about how he got started working for Disney and what he did at first, how his musical background helped him in his role as a director, what it was like seeing his work on the big screen for the first time, the first time he remembers thinking, I'm doing something really special here, what his new book, Yesterday's Tomorrow, is about, why the mid-century modern approach and outlook spread so widely and was so broadly embraced, what the most fascinating things were he discovered while writing the book, whether he has any plans to revisit any of the topics in this book in some form at another time, the documentary he's working on about playwright and renowned lyricist Howard Ashman, his advice to you for following your dream, spoiler alert, it involves horses, kind of, and of course, shameless plug time. Now a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. If you love all things Disney, then you're a D-head. And if you're a D-head, this is the show for you. Each and every week, Disney Blue presents Disney On Demand, your free, dedicated Disney podcast hosted by Jonathan Johnson. Every week, Disney Blue relives all the Disney magic, movies, and memories. Every week, you'll hear our celebrity guests who make the magic, your favorite Disney actors, writers, directors, and characters, the best of classic Disney, and breaking news on Disney's latest films, television shows, and theme parks. So put on your ears and give it a little bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Disney Blues Disney On Demand is on the air, and it's free. Just go to DizRadio.com. That's D-I-Z Radio.com. See you real soon. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. Today on Stories of the Magic, I have the pleasure of interviewing someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time, and hopefully this is just the first of many conversations. Don Hahn is best known for having produced the classic Beauty and the Beast, the first animated film nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. 
He also produced a few other little movies you may have heard of, like The Lion King and The Emperor's New Groove. He is rather less well-known as an uncredited animation assistant on Pete's Dragon, Disney's big release for the 1977 holiday season, and as an assistant director on 1981's The Fox and the Hound. All of these are profoundly loved in my house, though. Don is the author of a number of books, including Before Ever After, Animation Magic, The Alchemy of Animation, and Brainstorm, Unleashing Your Creative Self. His most recent book is Yesterday's Tomorrow, Disney's Magical Mid-Century, a valentine to an era of optimism, relaxed lifestyle, and innovative design. A large-format general audience book illustrated with rarely seen art and photography of the mid-20th century, reflecting the unique style that Walt Disney and his artists contributed to the era. Not only am I looking forward to talking to Don, I'm looking forward to seeing this book in person at some point, too. So two things to look forward to here. Don, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Stories of the Magic. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Now, before we get into the questions, I do have to say happy birthday a little bit early. Oh, it is a little bit early. Yeah, I, um, I'm growing older uh, soon. So thank you. You're welcome. Ours are a few days apart. So oh, when I noticed your birthday, I had to be sure to get that wish in there. Yeah, it always comes around Thanksgiving, which is nice because we get a big meal. Right. Bring out the turkey and gravy and everything, and you can celebrate all you yes. want with me. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So tell me how you got started working for Disney and kind of what you did at first. Wow. Well, I, um, right before I came to Disney, I was in music school at Cal State Northridge. So I was studying to be a uh, performing musician, like a percussionist. Um, and I had a chance to apply to Disney and get, you know, just an entry level job. And this was, uh, many years ago, 40 years ago. And uh, so I got a summer job. I got a job just going and delivering coffee to animators and that kind of thing. But I was, uh, delivering to people who were like some of Disney's nine old men and some of the most revered animators of uh, that era that started out with Walt Disney, almost inventing the art form of animation. So I was really lucky. I, I started around the same time as people like Len Keen and Tim Burton and, I was able to, um, you know, just, just be around. And I didn't start as an artist at all. I really was um, just a delivery person. And then pretty soon I got a chance to uh, move up in the world and be what was called at the time an assistant director, which is kind of a, um, what it sounds like, just assisting the director with anything from threading up the moviola to taking notes to doing whatever. And I worked with Don Bluth a little bit on Pete's Dragon, and I worked with Willie Reiderman, which was great, on Fox and the Hound, you know, just just helping him. And he was, it was funny because my uh, films growing up that I loved were 101 Dalmatians and Jungle Book. Um, and those were the movies I remember as a kid. And then to be able to actually end up at Disney years later working for the guy that produced and directed those movies was uh, really the circle of life. You know, it was funny that that, that amazing coincidence. So I was a really lucky guy. Um, I tried animating for a while, but then I saw I wasn't going to be a world-class animator. So I really got interested, though, in production and uh, helping people make the movie, which I really enjoy still. So really, you went working kind of for the animators, helping them out, but then realized that your talents lay in taking their work and having kind of that either vision for it as the uh, director or kind of putting everything together as producer or something along those lines and not so much the in the, the drawing room kind of portions of it but I imagine you still have to sort of have an eye for the animation even yeah. if 
you're not necessarily doing the animation to recognize what's going well, what needs a little bit of development, what can be cut, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I always loved animation and um, I always loved Disney growing up, but I, I saw pretty early that I wasn't going to have the patience to really do it uh, the right way. I mean, it just takes like any craftsperson or artist, it takes hours and hours at the drawing board to get really good at it. And I suppose I'm a little attention deficit. And so the idea of, even though I did it for a long time, sitting at a drawing board drawing or doing in-betweens or doing cleanup drawings um, was hard for me. It was just hard to sit there and stare at a, a light board for 40, 50 hours a week. And, and I really enjoyed working with people. So the chance to be able to uh, work with directors and work with people um, ended up being a better place for me, I think, or, or a more natural fit for me. Um, cause I think I would have gone nuts had I stayed just looking at the drawing board and I, I was, I was just okay. And I, you know, I would have taken a lot of practice to get better. And I think I was just better working with people and using my musical background on producing movies and kind of going in that direction instead. Okay. That brings up an interesting question that I hadn't even thought to ask because I actually wasn't aware of your musical background, uh, which jumped out to me cause I'm a percussionist as well, not formally trained, but. I understand that musical connection, but how did that musical training help you in the producing process? Well, it was, it was really valuable for me because um, I could, mainly because I had a vocabulary to talk to people about music and wasn't um, particularly fearful about it. And, and it wasn't that I was wanting to go in and say, well, you know, why don't we change the key of this and go up a half step? And I, you know, it wasn't that literal. It was really just being comfortable talking to people like Alan Menken or, or Stephen Schwartz or the people I've worked with just to be able to talk about the music and the tone and the style and the um, style of music we would have. And, and really early in my career, fairly early, um, I got to work with Howard Ashman and Alan Menken on Beauty and the Beast. And that was a real education for me. You know, anything I didn't learn uh, in music school, I certainly learned on the job working with people like that. Um, so the, the music knowledge was, it, it um, I, I just don't have any fear of dealing with music and that, that comfort level made it easy to work on a lot of musicals. I'd love to come back and revisit this subject another day. I have a feeling there's some really interesting insights and thoughts that go along with that, but I know we do need to move on here. So yeah. what was it like seeing your work on the big screen for the first time? Um, it's unusual, you know, it's animation is so collaborative. It's hard to really point to one thing and say, that's mine. Although on you know, some of the early scenes I worked on, you would point, you know, we'd look at a scene and go, that's my drawing up there. And, and it's two stories high. And that's, that's an odd feeling, you know, cause you feel like you're contributing to this greater thing, but in the end, it's not one person's work. It's really a collaborative medium. So you're proud of it, but you're proud in the way that a, uh, a winning baseball team would be proud of a win you know it's, it's a team effort you're doing it together and um you feel like all of us did something that not one of us singularly could do but together we were able to put something on the screen that's really special so it's kind of a, a group celebration um when it comes to that you know as opposed to if you're a painter or a novelist or something you have that individual satisfaction of writing or painting uh in animation it really is a team sport right right and as an author who's written several books, there's certainly a team involved in that too, but obviously in a much different scale when it comes to producing a film or any work involved in making a film. Yeah, it's true. And I'm doing a lot of documentaries right now and the team is smaller, but it still has the same feeling of collaboration. And, uh, and that's what I like. I, I, you know, I can certainly 
do things alone and that's fine, but it's a lot more fun to collaborate. Sure. I can understand that. So was there a time probably fairly early on in your career somewhere that you first remember thinking, you know, I'm doing something really special. I'm a part of something really special here. Um, of course. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it's funny working at Disney is special to begin with, even if you're, um, you know, serving up hamburgers or collecting the trash at nighttime, it's still a cool place. Um, and that's a hundred percent because of the people and the history of the place. So, uh, you feel lucky to work there just because of the people that have worked there and are working there. And, um, so that is what makes it a cool place because, uh, you know, a building's a building and, uh, you know, there's a lot of studios out there, but Disney's unique. It, it values its history, which is part of the reason I like to write about it, write about the books, or write about the history of Disney. Uh, but it also uh, is a rare company that has thrived on artistic talent. And the founder, the guy whose name is on the door, is an artistic talent and a really gifted, um, you know, producer and, and uh, filmmaker. And Walt Disney himself was always really inspiring to me and, and talk about fearlessness and kind of what he brought to the party. So yeah, it's, it's, you, it does dawn on you working at a special place. It doesn't mean it's without problems. It doesn't mean it's without um, interpersonal relationships that are flawed and difficult times and budget problems and all the things you might find in any industry. But at the end of the day, you're making um, people happy. And that's, that's your job description on your business card. You know, it's like, we're here to make people happy or to inform them or to inspire them or to move them. And that's why it's, um, you know, it's special to be able to be able to work with this uh, particular product. Yeah. It's hard to beat making people happy as your job description. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I never take that for granted because uh, the world is a complex place and a crazy place and has been for a long, long time. And um, so to be able to contribute in a, uh, positive way by telling stories and offering, um, you know, fables and stories that uplift people is, uh, it's a high calling. And, you know, sometimes we're more successful than others, but at least we're trying. Right. Definitely. So now let's go ahead and shift gears a little bit, though it's not much of a shift because you were just talking about Walt Disney being an inspiration to you and some of the things that he was doing throughout his career. And I think that was part of your motivation as you were working on this most recent book, Yesterday's Tomorrow. So let's talk about that book first. And, and the first thing I want to ask is the basic question, which is, what's it about? Well, Yesterday's Tomorrow is about a period of time in the mid-century of the 20th century, the 50s and 60s. that um, was a really unique time, particularly in Southern California. And so much of Walt Disney's story emanates from Yes, from places like Kansas City or Marceline, but really from Southern California. It's where he lived. It's where his children were raised. It's where his company was. So in the mid-century, this book is about the um, kind of perfect storm of, of elements of post-war optimism, uh, a place of sunshine, plenty of land to build on, um, and an influx of people who are coming to Southern California who are either just out of the military or were happy to be done with years of war and the Great Depression and all that stuff. And for, if you think about it, from you know, 1918 until 1945, there was two wars and a depression. And so what a long stretch of um, tough times. And so when people came to California at the end of that era, um, it was a chance to reimagine yourself and rebuild yourself. And uh, that's what Walt Disney did. And you know, he came here after the First World War and 
by the time he got to the mid-century, he was surrounded by brilliant artists, and they really changed a lot about design and architecture and urban planning and music and publications and filmmaking. Uh, and that's what the book's about. It's about this radical change from this unique group of people headed by Walt Disney uh, that really affected our lives even today by what they did in the middle of the 20th century. Okay, and it seems like, and you mentioned several different aspects of mid-century. Usually when I think of it, I think of something along the lines of architecture, but there's obviously a lot more to this mid-century design and uh, mindset. It seems like this spread and had a greater foothold across the country than most other movements and uh, changes along those lines. Like, you know, I think of famous architects or uh, possibly famous musicians or something which had some kind of an impact, but not nearly as broad as this did. Do you think that's because of the change in technology and communication at the same time? Or what was it that made this mid-century approach and uh, an outlook so broadly embraced? Well, it, it goes back to kind of the goals of that period of time. Um, there was a lot of excitement about <clears throat> space travel. There was a lot of it because of, kind of uh, President Kennedy's call to make it to the moon. There was a lot of excitement about uh, atomic energy. Um, there was a lot of excitement about transportation because Eisenhower wanted to build an uh, interstate highway system. So there were several people that were pushing on several fronts. And so on the space front, um, you know, Werner von Braun and the, the uh, kind of rocket scientists of Huntsville, Alabama and NASA um, came to Walt Disney and Walt Disney did television shows about space travel. Eisenhower came to Walt Disney and, and wanted to popularize the idea of interstate travel. And so Walt Disney did a show uh, about interstate travel and cars that drive themselves. Um, he did a show about atomic, the use of atomic energy. Um, so he was really, he, he personally and for, for business reasons, he was trying to diversify and be more than an animation studio. Uh, but he could have just simply gone into live action films and that would have been a logical thing. Well, he did that, but he also got into um, the new medium of television. And he, for television, he made all these different films about space travel and things. And then as part of his television deal, he got money from ABC to build a theme park. And so he was building this uh, amusement park that was different than others because it was based on storytelling. Um, so he was able to take all those uh, different uh, people pushing in different directions, whether it was interstate travel or the space program or atomic energy or theme parks or television, all of which were new, all of which benefited on the war and the of industrialization after the war. And he was able to take advantage of that and bring his flavor and his gift for entertainment to all those different places. So it was really, you know, people are serving up all these ideas to him and he's like, yeah, I can do that. I can build attractions for the World's Fair. I can build a city of tomorrow. I can do this. So he was very optimistic and he trusted and had by that time a group of trusted artists around him that he really leaned on uh, to do that. So you had people like Mark Davis who were, you know, Mark's sitting there animating for probably 20 years and doing characters like Maleficent and Cruella de Vil. And then Walt calls and says, well, can you design a ride for Disneyland about Pirates of the Caribbean? And so he goes over and does that. And then he comes back and animates some more. And then he goes over and designs a ride for the New York World's Fair. And so he's using all of his artists in this massive general way to execute his 
ideas. And that's what makes it such an amazing story. Yeah, it really is an incredible story. And I know that you already had an interest in this time period. I'm listening actually just to the Nostalgia podcast recently when they were talking to you and you were sharing about some of the interest that you already had in it. But you didn't come into writing this book already knowing everything that you were going to write. We all have to do some research. Mm -hmm. We're putting that out there. So what was one or two maybe of the most surprising or fascinating things that you discovered while you were researching and writing the book? Oh, there were many, and it's true. I didn't, I didn't come to this topic because I knew it. It's, it's funny. I think a lot of authors come to topics because they want to learn it, and that was definitely the case about this. I, I grew up in Southern California, so I lived a lot of this, but didn't really know the backstory. I was really fascinated with how um, Walt would bring in just the top people in any particular era. You know, Werner von Braun at the time was running the space program for the Army and for NASA, so it wasn't like he would call up some low-level vice president or something. He was calling the guy at the top. Um, you know, Heinz Haber, who was, came in and wrote books about atomic energy, was in the same position. He was a um, you know, former German scientist who came to America to you know, study and contribute to atomic energy. Uh, so he, and he was dealing with Eisenhower. He was dealing with the top people in the world to tell his story. So that was kind of surprising. It wasn't just a guy who was um, out there like a lone wolf uh, telling these stories. He was plugged into the world and the needs of the world for these stories. Um, and then how fearless Walt was, you know, he's in like the financing of Disneyland. He, you know, he was looking to build this place that was um, outdoor entertainment, but he wanted to build it based on movies and, and he didn't, he hired architects at first, but they didn't get it. And so he hired movie set designers to design Disneyland. So when you go there, you're seeing, you know, the feeling of the real West or the real, uh, you know, Jungle Cruise or something. They're designed by set designers and you really feel like you're there. And it's not about the architectural integrity, although they have that, but it's really about the storytelling of it all. Um, and Walt would do anything to get that. He was famously for a while in the early 50s, he went and set up a separate company down the street from Disney uh, Studios, about three miles down the street in Glendale, uh, called uh, WED at the time. It's called Imagineering now, um, just to build these places because he needed a workshop. He needed Santa's workshop to be able to um, figure out what these things would be and how to build them. And um, he was not above doing extraordinary, unconventional things to get things done. Uh, incredibly persistent guy. You know, he wouldn't take no for an answer. Uh, and that persistence led to uh, his successes over the years. And, and ultimately, the, the most amazing thing is the amount of diversity that was happening, that in 10 or 15 years during this time, he, was, he had a bowling center in Denver, Colorado. He was buying land in Florida for Disney World. He was on television every Sunday night. Um, he was at Disneyland uh, signing autographs. He was making animated films. He was making live action films like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, he was publishing music and books and just diversified into all these areas. And because of that, he was kind of the first um, global entertainer or, or something that we would call today just a, a media giant. You know, some, we're used to that today from Disney uh, or the Time Warner, but we're, it wasn't the case back then. You might have had studios run by a mobile or whatever, but to have Walt Disney diversify into all these areas was the first kind of large media empire. Um, and, you know, it lasts 
today in large part because of his vision. Yeah, that's incredible. The the number, I mean, if you were describing all the things he was doing, it makes you wonder how he could be in that many places and doing that many things at once. But he was just so motivated and so driven to make those things happen and to have his hands in all of them and not just hand them off. Yeah, he was very hands-on. And we, you know, in an era that didn't have uh, email or cell phones or whatever, you know, it was an era of not even fax machines. You had to pick up the phone and call somebody or you had to they were in Europe, you would telex them. Um, you know, it, it's just as it's hard to believe because we're so used to, to doing an email or a text to somebody to communicate. Um, so the world was a little simpler place. Uh, it was not a totally easy era. Uh, there were still, you know, cultural difficulties. The Vietnam War was happening. Um, there were a lot of civil rights issues being ironed out during that time. It was a very chaotic time in many ways. But Walt kept his head down and kind of stayed to what he did best, which was entertaining people. Right. I could ask about 20 more questions about the book, but I'm going to ask one. And then I want to move on and talk about uh, a documentary that you're working on. You'd mentioned earlier that you're you're more heavily involved in documentaries right now. And there's one in particular I wanted to talk about for a little bit. But finally, about this book, there's a lot of topics in here, kind of all under the mid-century umbrella. So Mm -hmm. do you have any plans to revisit any of them in greater detail later? You know, somebody else has asked me that, and I, I think the answer is yes, I would love to. I don't know how, whether it's in a film or whether it's on paper or whatever, but the thing about a book that's wonderful and terrible is you can open up a topic to discussion in 144 pages and really share that topic in a way that ignites a conversation about it. And that's what I hope this book does. And it's a huge format. It really is a coffee table book because it's almost the size of your coffee table. Um, <laughs> and inside, we really populated it with the most interesting photos we could find. We spent a lot of money on really great vintage photos from Life Magazine and Look and National Geographic just to try to take you back to that era. So yes, there's so much that we couldn't put in the book. The best of the best is in the book, but it'd be great to revisit it at some time, uh, either in a blog or on the web or you know, some in some way where the audience can share it a little bit more. Well, good. I look forward to that. And this book is definitely going on my Christmas list. Yay. <laughs> You had mentioned to me that you're also working on a new documentary about Howard Ashman. So tell me about that. Well, um, many years ago, I, I had the fortune to work with Howard on Beauty and the Beast and, and really learn from him. And I think that's the same with all of us at animation at the time. There was a real renaissance in animation in the 80s and 90s. You know, if you recall before that, there was maybe an animated film every four years. A lot of people wouldn't go see it. If you were a kind of teenage date crowd, you wouldn't be caught dead at a Disney film. Um, you know, but, but that changed, that changed a lot. And it changed in part because of the films of the eighties and nineties. And those films, uh, if you recall the beauty and the beasts and little mermaids and Aladdin's and lion Kings, those films really reminded us how much we loved animation. Um, and at the center of many of those films was Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and their songs. And Howard really came into the company and taught us everything he knew about telling stories with songs. He was a uh, master's student at Indiana University. He was really incredibly schooled in the history of American musical theater. And so we would not only get his songs, but we would get these master classes about what it was like and, and how to lead into a song, how you get out of a song, why a song was placed at a certain place in the movie. So I was uh, fortunate to be in those rooms. And a few years ago, I made a movie called Waking Sleeping Beauty that was about that renaissance period. And it, it featured a lot about Howard. But I always wanted to tell his story 
uniquely and by itself because it's never been really told. And uh, the, the wonder of it is the contribution he made not only to animation, but to Broadway. And the, the sad ending of it is he died in the AIDS crisis uh, in 1991. And so he never really saw Beating the Beast completed. Uh, and yet he left behind such a huge legacy. I think Beating the Beast is probably going to be the number one movie this year uh, in its live action iteration. And a lot of that's because of Howard Ashman. So um, to be able to take his contributions and say, well, who is this guy? Where is he from? And tell the story of this you know, Jewish kid from Baltimore who uh, loved theater and wanted to grow up and contribute to it as a director and a writer and a lyricist um, has been a real treat and a real journey. And uh, so it's something I feel like I really want to share with the audience and it's important to share so his story doesn't get lost because he's been gone for 25 years and I think it's about time to let people know the contributions that he made. Yeah, it's definitely time. So when is that movie planning or scheduled to come out or do you have a release date yet for it? It'll roll out in, in uh, festivals next year. So uh, typically with a movie like this, we'll premiere it. We're doing a premiere in um, February in New York to benefit Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. And then after that, it'll uh, go out to film festivals for quite a long time just so the audience can enjoy it. And then after that, it will be available on Netflix and streaming and uh, the usual places where you find your movies. So, uh, you know, it should be by a year from now, it should be everywhere. Okay, great. Well, as it starts to roll out at those festivals and things or whenever is an appropriate time to promote it, I look forward to having you back on to be able to talk more about the finished product. Oh, I love that. As finished as a movie or a book ever gets. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they don't, they're never finished, they're released. No, you run out of time. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly right. But um, yeah, we've been working on it at the Howard Doc for about two years with his family, his sister, uh, Alan Menken, so many people who uh, contribute to that story. So it should be uh, a real treat and I can't wait for you to see it. Wonderful, I'm looking forward to it. So I have one question to kind of wrap up before I give you a chance for what we call on the show, shameless plug time, where you just give us all of your links and references all at once. Yeah. So people have one spot, but this one last question is that a lot of people listening have their own dreams and you know, maybe it's to work for Disney, maybe it is something else entirely, but they're afraid or they may have even forgotten that they had a dream once for whatever reason. What advice do you have for that person? Um, well, the cliche would be to say, uh, you know, never give up on your dreams, which is kind of true. But um, I would also temper that with saying, ride the horse in the direction that it's going. Uh, in other words, dreams change and you change. So a dream you might have when you're graduating high school won't be the same if you get out of college, won't be the same five or 10 years later when you have a family, it, you know, your life changes. And that life is a moldable, changeable thing. And you can kind of curate what you do in that life. So let your dreams be flexible. And by changing your dreams, you're not letting yourself down. You're not uh, disappointing anyone. You're just, you know, talking about the reality of where you are today. And it's good to dream big, but it's also good to dream small. You know, it's good to have small, uh, accessible, attainable uh, mini dreams to be able to say, you know, this, this coming winter over Christmas holiday, I want to learn how to uh, play chess. Or, you know, this summer I'm going to go travel to Africa for the first time or whatever those mini dreams are. Uh, you can tick those boxes as you live your life. And those mega dreams we may have as um, life goes on will eventually come true or not. But I feel like those mini dreams along the way are just as important. 
and just as fulfilling uh, as, as some of the major dreams are. So stay flexible and uh, you know, don't be afraid to move around and change your goals in life as life happens to you. Oh, that is fantastic advice. And you know, I don't think I've ever heard that advice before here on the show. <laughs> Thank you for a different perspective. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Hope it helps. Uh, it does. It actually even helps me. So whether it helps anybody else or not, it helps me. <laughs> you know, sometimes we get stuck and uh, you know, you get, you have dreams when you're in college and then 10 years later you go, gee, I always wanted to be a, like with me, I wanted to be a performing musician. I'm not, you know, I, so I could say, well, I'm really a failure because I never reached that dream. But I had other things come true that were totally unexpected. I never in a million years dreamed that I'd be doing what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. Often when we're willing to let one dream go, another one that we never even imagined at the time takes its place. Yeah. And that's, you could take uh, inspiration from Walt Disney again on that because he had a million failures. Uh, but he would always come back and say, you know, he, he had this huge success of, uh, of Snow White and Pinocchio and Bambi and uh, Fantasia. And then the war happened and a strike happened and he lost everything. And then he comes back after the war in this kind of middle century era. This is leading into your shameless plugs, by the way, um, in your mid-century era and becomes uh, a pioneer in television. Well, if you ask Walt Disney when he was 20 years old and came to Los Angeles, you say, Walt, what do you dream of? I dream of being a pioneer in theme parks and television. No way. He had no idea what those were. And the public had no idea what those were. So you keep your mind open and say, I'm going to navigate as time goes on and take opportunities as they come. Uh, that's what Disney did. That's what we all try to do is uh, take advantage of the opportunities that come your way. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a wonderful transition into shameless plug time. Very well done. You're welcome. So, <laughs> go ahead. Whatever you want to mention or promote how people can find you online, social media, obviously your books, especially this most recent one, how we can find it. Go for it, please. Well, you, No, you can, you can find me on Facebook and um, on a couple of places on Facebook if you want to um, see what I'm up to or what I'm doing on a daily basis, which oftentimes isn't that interesting. Um, I'm, I'm headed to Montreal, for example, next week to speak at the Phi Center about creativity and about filmmaking. So I'll be up there uh, Thanksgiving week. Um, I'm doing a book signing at uh, Disneyland in downtown Disney on um, December 2nd at the World of Disney Store. So if you want your book signed. I'll be sitting in the store with writer's cramp, happy to sign anything you bring in um, at downtown Disney on the 2nd at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, gosh, working on a bunch of stuff uh, parallel to all this, the Lion King live action movie with John Favreau is going on. He's a great director, so I'm involved on the fringes of that. Um, working on a, uh, just finished a documentary about the Gamble House, which is um, a wonderful piece of architecture in Pasadena, California that was Doc Brown's house in Back to the Future and is kind of the uh, beginnings of modern architecture in Southern California. And that was on PBS and it's now available uh, on DVD at the Gamble House Bookstore in Pasadena. Um, so that and many other things are in the works, but um, I'm a lucky guy and happy to have the kind of variety that I have in my life. Wonderful. That sounds amazing. I'm going to do my best to get to that uh, book signing on December 2nd. Oh, great. Hopefully I can make it over there because I'm just a few miles from Disneyland, so hopefully I can make it over there. Oh, that'd be terrific. Thank you so much for getting on here with me and sharing some about your time at Disney and then definitely about the book and the documentary about Howard Ashman that you're working on, some very exciting things that you've done and more on the way. I appreciate you sharing that. Look forward to having you back on to talk some more. 
That's great. Thank you for all you do. And I look forward to talking more later. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Don Hahn for being my guest and to you for listening. Next up, we have a very special interview that is pretty extensive and very inspiring, I think, with Disney Imagineer and puppeteer, Muppet performer, and much more, Terry Harden. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, whether you've written a book, created a website, you're blogging, writing, or performing music, art, whatever it may be, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who have worked for Disney. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and you had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, then I'd love to hear from you too. In fact, if you have any kind of gratitude for the Walt Disney Company or any portion of it, any product that they've produced or uh, any experience that you've had that you want to thank them for, with this being Thanksgiving weekend, this would be a great time to share that story. For any of these, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in Apple Podcasts, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, Stitcher Smart Radio, or through Google Play Music. If you like the show, please rate and review it in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. It really helps. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest. Basically, tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic, too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories, but this tale is finished. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com, for show notes from this and every episode, and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.